my peoples my peoples my peoples welcome to right away podcast i'm your host jeffrey martin thank you for stopping in listening for a couple of minutes give me a little of your time i appreciate it i wanted to um today this evening i wanted to um with all the stuff going on around the brianna um taylor death and well murder uh i wanted to say something about that i wanted to speak to that but i didn't want to stay in the negative I really, you know, I know how angry it got me, still has me, and other people. And so I wanted to go at it from a different angle and honor black women. So I picked, what I did was I picked two writers that really have influenced me and continue to influence me and continue to inspire me. So, and one of the writers is Maya Angelou. The other writer is Alice Walker. Maya Angelou is probably best known for And Still I Rise. Um, poem, her poem is so powerful, but she's also known for that inspiring, that powerful, powerful book. I know why Cage Bird sings too. So, um, and then Alice Walker, of course, the color purple. But really, what got me with Alice Walker, the color purple is great. You know, uh, I don't need to say that for people to know. You know how great that is. But her autobiography really um, shook me. I, I read it a few years ago, and it really shook me. And so, to both of these women, um, I've written poems. In fact, for Alice Walker, in my first poetry book, I wrote her a poem and sent her the book. I don't think she ever got it because, you know, you have all these people in between, uh, the agents and whoever. So I'm sure somebody got it and she probably never saw the poem. I wasn't trying to get anything from her. I just wanted her to be a part of my first project because I put the poem in the book for her. Um, so I'm going to read that one first and then I'll get to my Angelou's poem. And it's really short. It's really short, but it says a lot because at, right after I read her autobiography, I wrote the poem and I was in the process of writing my book or finishing my book. I said, I'm going to put that in there too. And then I'm going to send Once I get the book, I'm going to send her a copy. So I looked up where she might be or where her, her agency is or the agency that handles her. I sent it. I never heard anything from her. Uh, and I'm not blaming, pointing fingers at her. I'm sure somebody intercepted it and said, ah, whatever. You know, she gets a thousand books a day. Somebody's always sending her something. So she probably never saw it, but I always wanted it to get to her. But it's really short. It's called For Alice. Defining herself without apology, she walks amongst goddesses where diamonds are used to finish sentences on pages of eternity. For Alice, let me read it one more time. Defining herself without apology, she walks amongst goddesses where diamonds are used to finish sentences on pages of eternity. And that's what I dedicated to Alice Walker after reading her um, autobiography because she went through a lot. Uh, she went through a lot being a strong personality and I think women well as a man you know I'm, I'm saying this as a man but it seems to me I can't speak for women I can't speak for their experience through their experience because I haven't experienced it as a woman but it just seems like when you're a bright woman 
a sharp woman, a smart woman, a woman who thinks on her own, a woman who doesn't need to be led around. Um, it causes problems. It causes problems for that male ego that you have to deal with. Black woman, white woman, whatever. But in this case, black women, um, it causes a problem. Smart is not looked at, it's not smiled upon amongst ignorant men. You know, it's really not. It's not smiled upon. So Alice went through a lot of that. And so when, after I read her autobiography, I said, wow. And I was just inspired to write that. Maya, when I read um, Cage Birds Sing and saw, uh, and, and read what she went through in, in five years without speaking and all that and how words, we always get back to those words. I'm telling you, we always get back to those words, how words brought her out of that. Um, so powerful. Before I read hers, though, I have to tell a little story. I had a chance to meet Maya Angelou. Um, early 2000s, I'm not sure what year, 2006, 2007, something like that. I think it was. I'm not sure. I, in fact, I'm looking through her book because, okay, this book was written, it's called A Song Flung Up to Heaven. That's the book that she had just finished. I'm going to look and see what date it was, um, it was released. And then I'll be able to tell you um, 2002. Oh, even farther back, 2002. So this book had just been released, and she was signing books, signing copies at this place called CAA or Creative Artists Association. And um, I had a family member working there at the time. Uh, and so we pull up, and I never like going in the place. It's you know that Hollywood vibe and all that fake and phoniness. I didn't want to go in the place. She was in there. There was a line. And I just didn't like, I had been there, been there a few, quite a few times, and I didn't want to deal with the vibe in there. I wanted to meet Maya Angelou, but I didn't want to deal with the vibe. I really didn't. I didn't want to, I didn't want to deal with that, that phoniness that happens. In, uh, but anyway, and I regret that now because I got a signed autograph. I, signed, I got a signed book, but I didn't get, to, I didn't have to, I didn't get a chance to, have a conversation with Maya Angelou. Not knowing that I would not get that opportunity again, I should have just carried my lazy behind in there and dealt with the vibes I thought I was gonna deal with and had a, chance, had a conversation with her, but I didn't. But these two women have, have really, really um, influenced me. A lot of women have, though. But these two writers, you know, it always comes back to those words. I'm telling you, words, not only change lives, they save lives. I, I truly, truly, truly believe that. And so, uh, getting back to Maya, I wrote her a poem. And I'm not sure how long ago I wrote this poem. I put it in one of my books, but I had written it years ago. Because I had this dream that I was writing something. And Maya Angelou was standing over me, standing over me, like to my right side, I'm, I'm writing, and she's standing over me, she's looking down, she doesn't say anything, but she's smiling, and based on, it was like a dream, so based on that, I, when I woke up, I'm like, I gotta write this, and it's called Maya, you inspire me to be proud, and someone relevant, I read your books, studying your language, feeling your hand on my shoulder, and you, laughing in my ear, upon hearing that you inspire me. 
and that was dedicated to my Angelou. And it was based off a dream that I had that I was writing, and she was standing over me, just smiling, looking over my shoulder, what I'm doing, and and just smiling. And when I woke up, I I wrote that poem, and I'm not sure how far back that poem goes. Um, but I had written that quite a while ago. Before before I actually put it in the book, the the book I put it in, I wrote um, I don't know. 2009, but I had written the poem prior to that, you know, maybe five, six years before that. Um, so these two women, not only these two women, but women have had such an impact. And, and I figured that I would talk about the influence of women, but primarily black women, because that's the women that have um, raised me, impacted me, um, influenced me, inspired me. Uh, those are the women that have done it. So that's the only women I can speak of as far as my own personal journey. But women have done that all over the world. Regardless of what nationality you're coming from, they've done that all over the world. But I'm just speaking from my experience. Of course, my first um, influencer was my mother. Um, and that was, you know, as mothers are, mothers are influenced by whatever their surroundings are, and then they do the best with what they can do when they have children. They do the best with what they can do. Um, but I think, like with the whole Brianna Taylor thing, I felt like I needed to to honor women, to honor women, especially black women, who, um, if they're smart and aggressive, they're seen as too smart and too aggressive. Um, you know, they're, uh, I don't know, they're just not honored as they should be, you know. And the, the thing about honoring, when I say honor, I'm not saying just calling somebody a queen or, or calling somebody a goddess. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about everyday life, you know, everyday life, honored in everyday life, respected in everyday life. That's what I'm talking about. Um, what we say is, is, can be beautiful, can be inspiring, of course. I'm, I'm always about the words. It can be very inspiring. But what we do, what we do holds a lot more significance, I think. I really do. You know, you can say that you love me and your actions speak contrary to that. But when you love me, you know, the words are nice, but they're not as needed. They're not as necessary. So, and I think far too often black women aren't honored and they aren't respected as they should be um, we have this all of this attention on Rihanna Taylor uh, a few years ago uh, when the incident happened with Sandra Bland same thing same thing um, I was in Colombia when that happened uh, or right around that time and um, I remember Sitting down, and it was heavy on me. It was, it was bothering me. It was bothering me that um, this girl, so-called, or this this woman, so-called, hung herself. Um, it just bothered me. It, what bothered me was how easily people's minds are manipulated when it comes to black lives. You know, things that don't make sense for anybody else, they happen to somebody black, then it, there's a maybe in there. Well, maybe this happened. Maybe this is exactly what happened. You know, those stories that wouldn't go over with a six-year-old when it comes to black lives, 
all of a sudden. Yeah, there's some there's some relevance to that. You know, it doesn't make any sense. So Sandra Bland's death bothered me. All of the deaths bothered me. Um, and like I said, I was in Colombia, and I felt like, and hopefully it doesn't. Well, however it sounds, it sounds. I just gotta say it the way it comes to me. I felt like Sandra Bland was speaking to me. And so I wrote a poem, and I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. But I wrote a poem for her. But I felt, with that poem, I felt like she was speaking through me. I really do. I felt like she was speaking. It was odd because I was in Colombia. Um, there was no English being spoken around me. And I'm sitting and I'm thinking about what's going on with her and what they're talking about as far as um, as far as uh, uh, what happened surrounding her death and, and it just bothered me it was on my mind but I didn't have anybody to talk to about it so I'm, I'm you know I'm on a farm uh, chilling just having a good time enjoying myself relaxing but it was on my mind and so I sat down and it's like she came to me and she said you have to write this you have to write this and I wrote this poem for Sandra Blanc. And here we are with Fast Forward, and here we are with Breonna Taylor, and so many others. And I just felt like I needed to, to um, just honor black women in this time, you know, at this time. And I don't think we do that enough. And um, the women, a lot of times, the black women that we see uh, represented uh, through media and, and that kind of thing, aren't the everyday black women. I'm honoring the everyday black women that get up and, and get it done every single day. Kids or no kids, school, work, whatever it is. Whatever it is. I was talking to my cousin um, today, matter of fact, talking about a lot of things, and she was talking about work and how for years she's been on this job and she'll see people, young white kids or or other people come through and she's been doing this for years and they always get the benefit of the doubt. As long as she's been there, she's proven herself at that job, whatever it is she does. But they, whenever something comes up, whatever they say, it's always given the benefit of the doubt. And whatever she has to say or whatever, whenever she has uh, a contrary feeling about whatever's going on, a project or whatever they're doing, um, it's mulled over, but it's not really taken serious. And she said she was, she's been dealing with that for years at the job. Um, she said one good thing about it, the supervisors that she was dealing with for all those years left or got fired or laid off or whatever. And that opened it up a little bit. So the supervisor that came in was a little more open-minded, a little bit more. But it's still something she has to deal with all the time. And I think black women have to deal with that all the time on different levels. Black men too, but I'm not talking about black men today. I'm talking about black women. So I just wanted to honor the, the mothers, but not just the mothers. You don't have to be a mother to be honored. You know, you can be a lot of things. Maybe you're not a mother. But you, um, you carry yourself in a way that is respectful that doesn't always get the attention that it should, the positive attention that it gets, should get. Here's one that I wrote. I wrote a book um, that I dedicated to my mom. It was called As Sons Love Their Mothers. And I wrote her this poem. And I don't know if my mom ever... The book was... Um, <laughs> the book was my way 
and I didn't tell my mom this at, when she was living. I should have. My the book was my way of saying, "Mom, whatever went wrong on your end, I forgive you, and whatever went wrong on my end, I hope that you forgive me too." That's what this book was about. When I wrote, when I dedicated it to my mom, that's what it was about. It was about forgiveness between the two of us. So I wrote this poem to my mom, and um. As sons, as sons love their mothers. And I, like I said, I don't think my mom ever read it. I don't think she ever read it. She said that um, the, the print was too small and she couldn't really see it. But um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. Just the fact that I gave her the book was enough for her. But I really wanted her to read the poem and read the poetry in there. But especially this very first one that's called As Sons Love Their Mothers. Because it says a lot about how I felt about my mom, um, even through our differences. She was, um, she was my first hero. And by her being my first hero, um, most of, the, most of the, the positive memories that I have, being a young child, had something to do with her. Definitely had something to do with her. Very few of them, um, when I was younger especially, had anything to do with anybody else. Usually it was my mom. So this is that sons love their mothers. Life with its ebb and flow gives lessons which parallel mountains and valleys, requiring nothing more than the ability to breathe long enough to desire tomorrow. The eternal obsession with becoming more than history's footnote and giving reason to everything related to living, we march forward undecidedly decided that our presence shall amount to more than short days, long nights, and eternal sleep. So we promise our caretakers that we shall prove worthy of the pain and lasso stars that they may rest upon, while watching us give substance to a superficial reality, fueled only by the love that began this journey and the sacrifice that warns it. That's as sons love their mothers. And like I said, my mom never read that. But I think just the act of me, just the, the fact that I gave her a book, and it's got myself as a little boy, eight or nine-year-old boy, and me and, and my mom um, on the cover did a lot for her. But I always wanted her to read it and, um, and understand exactly. Because a lot of times I couldn't say what I felt, but I could always write it. You know, and um, and yeah, and women have played a big part in me not severing my ties with that that other energy. You know, everything's not about masculine. You know, and so watching my mom played a big role in me continuing writing, even though she didn't know I was writing a lot of times and didn't really pay attention to that. Um, watching my mom kept me. Uh, what's the word? Kept me uh, balanced, I guess you could say. Balanced. Because a lot of times we, um, as young men especially, we want to appear hard or tough or um, not too emotional, all of that stuff. But my mom kept me kind of balanced in that. Um, to this day, I have no problem showing, showing emotion. Sometimes I show too much. but um, And that's based on watching my mother, watching my aunts, um, watching women in the church, you know, so, so women have played a big influence. 
probably, as far as keeping me balanced, probably played a bigger influence than men. Because most of my inter- interactions with men as I, when I was growing, especially starting with my stepfather, were, were negative. I didn't really look up to men around me. I really didn't. I didn't look up to men around me. I, I started off looking up to men, but as I got older, um, there was resentment there. You know, there was fear there. There was um, intimidation there. But it wasn't any love. It wasn't um, this, this um, high regard for the men that were around me. There really weren't. The women, especially my mom and my aunt, a couple of my aunts, I, um, I listened to them. You know, they were, they were, um, they were, I want to say softer because that's not the word. They, they would listen. I'll put it that way. They would listen. They would listen to another side. And me, you know, being crazy, um, I always had another side. I always had a different opinion. Even if they didn't agree, um, they would at least listen. And I felt like the men in my life, they wouldn't listen. It was their way or the highway. That was it. That was the way it went. But I think the women in my life, they listened, you know, or, or pretended to, <laughs> or they pretended to. So I just wanted to honor women because um, that, that's, that's balanced me out. That really has balanced my life. Uh, I had a, a, I always say my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Kwama, was the one who told me I was going to write, but I had a, a, I think, 11th grade teacher, Mrs. Sanders, who told me, and I may have said this in another podcast, you have a flair for writing. And um, I didn't know what she meant by flair, but I knew it was a compliment. And she wrote it in red. You know, and a lot of things that, <laughs> a lot of things I've written, I've kept. I don't know if I still have that. You know, that thing would be ages old now, but a lot of things I kept. Especially when there were positive things about my writing, I would keep them. You know, I would keep them. Not sure why I kept them, but I would keep them. So, um, women have. Miss Sanders, you know, told me I had a flair. I wrote a poem called Shakespeare. I'll be better. I think I was in the twelfth grade, and I had another teacher, white teacher. Miss Sanders was a white teacher too. Um, Mrs. Sapp, that was her name, and she really loved. I took her. I took a literature class. I think I was a senior. I think. And I took a literature class, and Mrs. Sapp loved Shakespeare. She loved Shakespeare. So, and I, you know, as I, once I got out of school and started reading, I liked Shakespeare too. But at that time, I was like, oh, I just got to take the class and get through it. But um, I wrote this poem called Shakespeare, I'll Be Better. And I gave it to Miss Sapp and said, Miss Sapp, what do you feel about this? And so she took it to her desk. She sits down. And um, I guess we're doing class assignments. So I give her the poem, but then I'm working on whatever the classroom assignment is. And everybody else is working. And I kind of hear her snicker up at the desk. And so I look up, and she's looking at the paper. She's looking at the paper that I've given her. And she's got this smile on her face, and she's shaking her head and smiling. And so she comes over to me, and her eyes are big as like golf balls. And she says, can I make a copy of this? I said, yeah, sure. Oh, this is great. This is great. You think you're going to be better in Shakespeare? I said, yeah, I do. And she just uh, got a kick out of that. She went and made a copy. And um, I guess she kept it. But, um, but yeah, but women have always been that balancing act for me. You know, It was okay to be tough if you had to be tough. But it wasn't always okay to be tough all the time. You know, Sometimes you have to give 
softness and 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 vulnerability room too because that's how you grow you know you don't grow by um putting bars all around you you know there's a time and place for that i guess but um you have to in order to grow you have to give you have to give yourself room for your wings to spread and on um, bars and 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 hang-ups and won't allow your wings to spread sometimes so women have done that especially black women have done that for me and I appreciate them. The writers, Toni Morrison, you know, um, of course, Maya Angelou and Alice Walker. Uh, 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 there was a, a, a young lady who, um, oh, I can't think of her name now. A younger lady. I just read something, and one of my friends recommended this book, and I read it, and it was powerful. I don't have it in front of me. But, yeah, they continue, women continue to inspire me. But... I, you know what I need to do? I need to read more women, too, to be quite honest. I need to read more women because the names of men come to me right away. You know, because I've read so many men writers. I've read a lot of women writers, but not half as many as men writers. And those na- the men's names come to me right away. Now I'm sitting here on, on, on the podcast. I'm trying to think of all these women I've read. But because I don't read them on a regular basis like I do the men, I don't know them all. You know, I have the books here, but I can't just off the top of my head. And that's kind of sad, you know. So I need to do more reading with reading of, of women writers. But they have influenced me. Women thinkers. Um, Angela Davis is another one. Powerful stuff. If they come in the morning, it's powerful. The first time I read that, <laughs> I got frustrated because my vocabulary at the time it just wasn't up to snuff. And so I kept running into these words that I didn't understand. I got frustrated. And I put it down. like, oh, I can't read this. I'm blaming the book. But it wasn't the book. It was my vocabulary. <laughs> I, I, you know, and at that time, you know, you didn't have these phones that you could just look up a word right away. You had to go to the dictionary. I'm like, I don't feel like going to the dictionary every other couple of sentences or something but for some reason it was hard for me to for my first reading of if they come in the morning by angela davis that was tough for me that was really difficult then when i went it's it's interesting that when i went back to it i just flowed through it but that's because i just continued to read i just continued to read and build my vocabulary just through reading not through looking up words but through reading and i built up my vocabulary where i, where I could handle if they come in the morning but when I first tried it, I, I couldn't deal with it. I really, really couldn't deal with it. Let me read you um, a passage from Maya Angelou's A Song Flung Up to Heaven. Um, well, let me, let me read this little um, in, the insert in the book. A Song Flung Up to Heaven opens as Maya Angelou returns from Africa to the United States to work with Malcolm X. But first, she has to journey to California to be reunited with her mother and brother. No sooner does she arrive there than she learns that Malcolm X has been assassinated. Devastated, she tries to pull her life back together. Working on the stage in local theaters and even conducting a door-to-door survey in Watts. Then Watts explodes in violence, a riot she describes firsthand. Subsequently, on a... On her trip to New York, she meets Martin Luther King, who asks her to become his coordinator in the North. And she visits black churches all over America to help support King's Poor People's March. But once again, tragedy strikes. King is assassinated. And this time, Maya Angelou completely withdraws from the world, unable to deal with this horrible event. 
Finally, James Baldwin forces her out of isolation and insists that she accompany him to, dinner, to a dinner party where the idea for writing I Know Where a Caged Bird Sings is born. In fact, a song flung up to heaven ends as Maya Angelou begins to write the first sentences of Caged Bird. That's interesting. That's interesting. A little bit more on, on Maya Angelou. Poet, writer, performer, teacher, and director, Maya Angelou was raised in Stamps, Arkansas, and then went to San Francisco. In addition to her best-selling autobiographies, beginning with I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, she also she has also written five poetry collections, including I Shall Not Be Moved, Shaker, Why Don't You Sing, as well as celebrated poem On the Pulse of Morning, which she read at the inauguration of President William Jefferson Clinton. So I'm just going to read you... Um, a little bit. And that, this is the book that she has and what she wrote in it because, I, like I said, I didn't meet her. I was too lazy and I didn't want to deal with CAA. Um, a song flung up to heaven. And she says, Jeff, joy, my Angelou. But it could have been so much more had I just gotten up out of the car and said, hey, I'm going to go in here and stand in this line and meet one of my heroes. But I didn't. I didn't. She says in the beginning of her book, I think five of my living teachers, the reverends, Frederick Brucher, I guess, Eric Butterworth, Serena T. Churn Jr., a senior, H. Beecher Hicks, and Cecil Williams. I'm going to read you just a little part of, of chapter one. The old ark was a Pan Am jet, and I was returning to the United States. The airplane had originated in Johannesburg and stopped in Accra, Ghana, to pick up passengers. I boarded wearing traditional West African dress and sensed myself immediately and for the first time in years out of place. The presentiment of unease enveloped me before I could find my seat at the rear of the plane. For the first time, I'm sorry, for the first few minutes, I busied myself arranging bags, souvenirs, and presents. When I finally settled into my narrow seat, I looked around and became at once aware of the source of my discomfort. I was among more white people than I had seen in four years. During, the period, during that period, I had not once thought of seeing white people. There were European, Canadian, and white American faculty at the university where I worked. Roger and Jean Crenaud, who were Swiss United Nations personnel had become my close friends and in fact helped me to raise or better corral my teenage son. So my upset did not come from seeing white complexion, but rather from seeing so much of it at one time. For the next several, seven hours, I considered the life I was leaving and the circumstances to which I was returning. I thought of the difference between faces I had just embraced in farewell and those on the plane who looked at me and other blacks who also boarded in Accra with distaste, if not outright disgust. I thought of my rebunctious 19-year-old son, whom I was leaving with a family in Ghanaian, of Ghanaian friends. I also left him under the watchful eye, and I hoped tender care of God, who seemed to be the only force capable of controlling him. My thoughts included the political climate I was leaving. I was known it was a known fact that the anti-government forces were aligning themselves at the very moment to bring down the regime of Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana's controversial, much adored, and, much, and also much hated president. The atmosphere was thick with accusations, threat, fear, guilt, 
greed, and capriciousness. Yet at least all the visible participants in the crowded ambience were black in contrast to the population in the environment to which I was returning. I knew that the air in the United States was no less turbulent than that in Ghana. If my mail and the world newspapers were to be believed, the country was clamoring with riots and pandemonium. The cry of burn, baby, burn was loud in the land, and black people had gone from er the earlier mode of sit-in to set fire, and from march-in to break-in. Malcolm X was on his last visit to Accra. On his last visit to Accra, had announced a desire to create a foundation he called the Organization of African Unity, American Unity. His proposal included taking the plight of African Americans to the United Nations and asking the World Council to intercede on the part, intercede on the part of beleaguered blacks. The idea was so stimulating to the community of African American residents that I persuaded myself to, that I should return to the states to help establish the organization. Hmm. So she was on her way back when Malcolm was killed. So just a little, little brief history on um, Maya Angelou and her. Um, I have a, a story that I I read about. I don't think it's in this book, but how um, the whole American atmosphere can mess with your thinking. Maya Angelou was in Africa, and she was in a store, and she was waiting to be served. She had, I guess, she had found something that she wanted to purchase. And she's waiting to be served. And the guy behind, or whoever it was, the owner behind the desk, seemed to be ignoring her. She was trying to get his or her attention. I'm, I'm not sure if it was a male or female. Trying to get his or her attention. And it seemed like they were ignoring, it, ignoring her. And she said her first thought was, he or she is ignoring me because I'm black. You know, because she had been in the United States. And then she had to check herself. Because the person behind the counter was black as well. But because of the American atmosphere, her initial thought, her first thought was, it's because I'm black. And that's what happens here. It still happens here. Um, it still happens here. So we don't play the race cards. The race cards play us. And it continues to do so. So I just wanted to um, honor black women, women in general, but black women specifically. Because they played such a role in my development, in my growth. Um, I have a ways to go. Not perfect. I don't, I'm not reaching for per perfection because it's not, you know, it's not reachable. But I'm trying to be a better me every day. And that's, that's all you can do. But I just want to thank black women for being such a positive impact in my journey. I think I continue to write... Um, I have some heroes. I have James Baldwin. I love James Baldwin. I love George Jackson. But I think the love of writing stayed with me because of women and their support and their encouraging words in my writing process and their encouraging words in my, my journey, just giving me advice that I would think about and go write about. So I thank you. I honor you women. I thank you all. Thank you for everyone I have met and will meet. I thank you for your influence. And I just want to say that you are not only vital, you are relevant, you are beautiful, and you are very um, appreciated. This is Jeffrey Martin, Right Away Podcast. Thank you for hanging out with me. Till next time, right peace. Away.
Let's go. 